Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition. With real-life stories from the front lines of nursing, this podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about the crazy diagnosis of tachybrady syndrome. And joining me to talk about tachybrady syndrome is one of my favorite nurses to save lives with, Kat Jones. Kat, welcome to the Rapid Response RN podcast. I am so happy you agreed to this interview with me. Thank you. I feel so honored. Awesome. So y'all, Kat is truly an amazing nurse. She has made so many good catches on her floor. She's a patient advocate and genuinely concerned for her patients. She's a fairly new nurse, but so motivated to learn and grow that she doesn't really feel like a novice. I really wanted to interview her because I want my listeners to know that every good story of life-saving that I share starts with the primary nurse noticing something's up and it's the team effort that saves the patient's life. So I'm happy to highlight some of the excellent nurses I get to work alongside. So before we dive into the story, I want my listeners to know a little more about you, Kat. So let's start with why did you become a nurse in the first place? I haven't actually always known that nursing was right for me. My mom is a nurse, so medicine and taking care of others was always talked about in my house growing up. My first real exposure to medicine was in college when I worked as an emergency vet tech. And while I loved medicine and getting to learn, it didn't allow me to help people in the way that I wanted. Then when I moved to Florida, I was nannying my niece while I kind of figured out what I wanted to do. And I met my husband, who was an emergency doc at a big academic hospital. And he was like, you can do whatever you want, but I think you would make a phenomenal nurse and it would make you really happy. And I was like, wow, you know me really well. I think you're right. So about a year later, I was a brand new nurse. Well, your hubby was right. You were definitely meant for this. And how long have you been a nurse? I got my license in 2016, but I stayed home with my son while I got my bachelor's in nursing. So I've only been practicing for about a year and a half. And they already have you relief charging. That says a lot about you, Kat. So tell my listeners, what type of unit do you currently work on and what do you love about it? I work on a cardiac telemetry floor. I love that because our patient population is mainly cardiac patients, but there are a lot of different comorbidities that make managing their health a little more of a challenge. I also love that my floor has team members with all kinds of nursing backgrounds. So I get to ask a lot of questions and learn something new every day from my team. Yeah, y'all's floor is super busy. I think you have the most patient turnover than any inpatient unit in our hospital. So what are your future professional goals as a nurse? That is a great question. I'm still figuring it out, but I would love to learn more about emergency medicine and critical care. Eventually, I would love to do rapid response and be able to be a resource for my hospital like you are for ours. I think it's so cool that you get to advocate for your patients and educate the bedside nurse so that we can all be better for our patients. Yeah, I'd love to have you on my team once you get all the right credentials and experience under your belt. It would be awesome to work together in that capacity. So now let's talk about the crazy case of tachybrady syndrome. To respect our patient's privacy, we're going to refer to her as Mrs. Hart, though that was not her name. So Kat, tell me the report that you got on Mrs. Hart when you started your shift. I got an elderly female, alert and oriented times four, ambulatory, sat at 98% on room air, 
not diabetic, so no ACHS, admitted late last night in AFib RVR. Highest I've seen is 180s, but seems to be responding to diltiazem. She's gotten two doses of diltiazem oral, and it will bring her down to the 90s, but after a little while, she goes right back up to the 140s. I also got a one-time push of diltiazem in the ER, and yesterday she had said she felt a little dizzy when she saw her cardiologist, so he told her to check into the ER. Cardiology has been consulted, so they should see her sometime this morning. And what was the plan of care before she had her bradycardic event? I like to do my full assessment in the morning with my morning med pass. So I went in, introduced myself, and asked her what brought her in. She explained that her cardiologist had encouraged her to walk a lot at home to keep her strength up. She said that she went in for a regular visit, and he said her heart was going a little too fast. I finished her assessment, checked on her telemonitor pad placement, and listened to her heart and lungs. She wasn't reporting pain or dizziness, and she said she felt a little tired, but otherwise ready to go home. She was oriented, and her biggest concern was that she wanted to get up and take a walk. I asked her if we could wait until the morning dose of diltiazem kicked in and for the cardiologist to okay it first. I was worried that if her heart rate was too fast, she may feel dizzy and fall. Cardiology still hadn't said if they wanted to do a diltiazem drip or a cardioversion. So the plan was basically, as far as had been communicated to you, to try and control her rate with PO diltiazem and possibly do a cardioversion if pharmaceutical rate control wasn't doing the job. Sounds like your typical AFib RVR admission plan of care. So then what prompted you to go evaluate her again after you had already done your assessment and passed your morning meds? The cardiologist had come to see her and had ordered IV low pressor because she wasn't converting back to normal sinus rhythm or slowing down much with the oral diltiazem. I checked the order, and before I went to pull it, I checked our telemonitor in the nurse's station to see if her current rate and rhythm had changed. As I looked, she went into a systole, and it looked real, so I ran into the room as fast as I could. What are the chances of that? So you just happened to go look at the monitor right as she went asystolic. <laughs> Get a cat. So then what happened? So I run into the room. She was in a semi-private room window side. When I looked at her and I called her name, she was cyanotic and unresponsive. Her husband was crying at the bedside, calling her name, and she looked like someone having a heart attack in a movie. I checked for a pulse, I didn't feel one, and I noticed she wasn't breathing. She was staring straight ahead with her mouth hanging open and making like a choking sound. So I pulled the code blue tab and I started laying the bed down so I could start doing CPR. And right before I put my hands on her chest, she woke up. What? The husband and I both breathed an audible sigh of relief and I started asking her some questions. Mrs. Hart, can you tell me where you are? Can you tell me what you're feeling? Can you tell me what happened? And just as I asked, she just looked shocked. I don't know. We just went for a walk and I felt dizzy, so I got back in bed. The doctor said I could. I, I don't know. About then, the crash cart rolls in and we get her on the monitor. She's an AFib RVR and I started to feel really silly. I asked my tech, shout out to Grace, to get me a blood sugar because my adrenaline was going and my hands were a little shaky and I didn't want to stick myself. So I got a blood pressure, and everything was coming back to her baseline. Well, it sounds like you did everything right, because cyanotic, unresponsive, pulseless patients with a systole on the monitor definitely need a code blue called on them, even if they wake up spontaneously. 
this patient needed some closer monitoring more than a Medtelli floor if she's going to Brady down to nothing without warning anybody. By the time we showed up, the patient was awake and oriented and back in AFib RVR right in the 140s. And that is why it's so important to have had the backstory from you or we would have given her diltiazem, which for a person with tachybrady syndrome is absolutely contraindicated without a pacemaker. So tell me how the plan of care changed after your discovery. Well, she was definitely not staying on my floor. She had a a 30 second pause with two PVCs and no perfusing beats. Once the cardiology had talked to her and we planned to move her, I pulled the ER doc in the hall and I was like, what just happened? Did I do this to her by not pushing the low presser quick enough? And she explained, no, that would have been so much worse. She told me a little more about tachybrady syndrome and how it presents. And she said the patient is going to need a pacemaker and some closer monitoring in the meantime in PCU. Oh my gosh, Kat. Did I do this to her? You're such a trip. You freaking saved the lady's life by checking her rate and rhythm before giving the beta blocker. And thank God you did. So the rapid response team ended up transporting her to the cardiac progressive care unit to be closer monitored until she could get a permanent pacemaker. They just let her remain in AFib RVR all night long, tacking away in the 140s with the transcutaneous pacer pads on, just in case she tried to pull another stunt of 30 seconds of asystole again. And then they took her the next morning for her permanent pacemaker placement. Hmm, (laughs) Then everything was looking good and she was recovering well from the pacemaker insertion procedure and her heart rate was controlled with the oral beta blockers. 24 hours later, she started getting tachycardic again. So they decided to start her back on diltiazem since the pacer could work as the backup should the diltiazem cause her to Brady down again. Then things got real crazy. A few hours after the diltiazem administration, myself and my colleague had just dropped off another patient on the cardiac progressive care unit, a couple doors down from where Mrs. Hart was. And then I heard the staph assist alarm go off in Mrs. Hart's room. So I ran to find her completely cyanotic with a heart rate in the 20s. I was like, I thought she got a pacemaker now. And the nurse said, she did, she's been fine. But evidently they had just turned her on her side to clean her and then she started turning blue in the face. So the tech pushed the staph assist button on the wall. I took one look at her and then the monitor and went ahead and called a code blue because even though she had a pulse right now and she was still responding to me, the slow heartbeat was obviously not producing enough cardiac output and I knew pulselessness was right around the corner. We gave a dose of atropine and started transcutaneously pacing her, both of which did nothing. We dialed the pacer pads up to the max milliamps and still were not getting capture. The crazy part was she would go from a heart rate in the 20s and then randomly her internal pacemaker would kick in and her heart would be back in the 60s. And then she would lose capture again and she'd be back in the 20s. We called the cath lab to have them prep the room uh, to take her back to repair the obviously malfunctioning pacer wires. And in the meantime, we intubated her for airway protection since she was in and out of consciousness depending on how low her heart rate was. We started her on an epi drip and a dopamine drip. And right after we intubated, her QRS complex widened. And that should have been my first clue that she was in PEA. I even said, her QRS looks wider, but didn't think to check a pulse again. But we couldn't get the BP cuff to cycle and it had been cycling automatically every two minutes for the epi drip titration. So I went to check for a manual blood pressure and I couldn't hear anything at all, which is what prompted me to check a pulse and I couldn't feel one, so we started CPR. 
darn PEA, it's a tricky one. Anyways, after only one round of compressions and a milligram of epinephrine, we got ROSC. We took her back to the cath lab where they found her pacemaker wire had come loose and was flopping all over the ventricle, hence the intermittent firing. They repaired the pacer and Mrs. Hart ended up walking out of the hospital a week later. So I'm very glad that she waited to have her asystole event for when you were her nurse, because if it happened at home, she might not have had been so lucky to have made such a full recovery. So strong work, Kat. Now, Knowing you, I'm sure you thought about Mrs. Hart for days and looked up tachybrady syndrome and analyzed everything that happened, which is probably why you're such a great nurse so early in your career, because you want to understand everything about your patients. But what were your big takeaways and what would you want, say, a new RN to learn from your experience? Yes. So in terms of tachybrady syndrome, something was wrong with the electrical portion in her heart. In the moment, I didn't have the experience or the data in front of me to know exactly what was wrong, but I knew that she needed help fast. She hadn't even been diagnosed with tachybrady syndrome yet, so all I knew was that my patient, who was once tachycardic and talking to me, was now unresponsive and pulseless. And as a new nurse, you're not going to know everything, so continue to be diligent and follow your gut. I was really glad that I checked her telepad placement in the morning and that we have a great telemetry monitoring team. How many times does the monitor falsely identify a systole and your patient is bored eating potato chips with a loose telepad? I saw the asystole, it looked real, I checked on my patient and knew something was wrong, so I got everyone that I would need in my boat to get my patient exactly what she needed. And that was the main takeaway for me. It never hurts to trust your gut and get more people in your boat when you think you have a problem. Yes, I love your analogy. When you're in a boat facing turbulent waters, it's always helpful to have more hands on deck or more people in the boat, as you said. Kat, thank you so much for taking the time to hang out with me today and to talk about our patient because there's so much we can learn from this case. It really is a privilege to work alongside you and I'm honored to have gotten to interview today on my podcast. Anytime. Thank you for having me. What a classic presentation of tachybrady syndrome. So what is tachybrady syndrome? How do you get this diagnosis? And what is the treatment? I also want to talk a little bit about bradycardia in general, so let's dive in. Tachycardia bradycardia syndrome is just what it sounds like. The patient exhibits episodes of both tachycardia, or heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute, and then without warning plummets into bradycardia with a heart rate less than 60, usually much less than 60. Tachybrady syndrome is a subcategory of the umbrella diagnosis of sick sinus syndrome, also called sinus node dysfunction. The sinus node, which is the primary pacemaker of the heart, is supposed to be in charge and commanding the orchestra, so to speak, of the electrical conduction pathway through the heart. When the sinus node is impaired, a variety of arrhythmias can result, both bradyarrhythmias and or tachyarrhythmias. About 50% of patients diagnosed with sinus node dysfunction develop tachybrady syndrome, which is a terrible combination of both. Sinus node dysfunction results from both intrinsic causes and or extrinsic factors. Intrinsic causes like fibrosis, inflammatory disease processes, ion channel dysfunction, or remodeling of the sinus node from injury or ischemia or just age-related changes. Extrinsic factors can be pharmacologic from drugs like antiarrhythmics or blockers like beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. There's digoxin, lithium, and a variety of toxins 
Um, extrinsic factors can also be from metabolic sources like electrolyte imbalances or hypothermia, hypothyroidism, or acidosis from hypoxia. Or they can be from autonomic sources like vasovagal sensitivity. Signs and symptoms are often subtle early on, but become more pronounced and scary as the disease progresses. And the signs and symptoms are what you would expect from someone who's alternating bradycardia and tachycardia. So when they're tachycardic, they might feel palpitations or weakness, maybe lightheadedness from decreased cardiac output. Then when they drop into bradycardia, they feel even more weak and have syncope as their heart is not beating fast enough to meet the body's demands, i.e. they can't quite perfuse their brain, so it takes a time out from wakefulness. And depending on the severity and length of duration of their bradydysrhythmias, they could develop an organ hyperperfusion, ischemia, and ultimately death. And as you can imagine, it's really tricky to diagnose. The patient might say, I keep passing out. So the doctor orders an EKG and it reads AFib. So the doctor says, you have AFib and orders the treatment for AFib. But a 12-week EKG is just a quick snapshot of the shenanigans their heart has been up to, which leads to our next problem, the treatment. What happens if you administer rate-controlling drugs like beta blockers or calcium channel blockers to someone who's already bradycardic? You got it. It's bad news bears. So that's the issue with tachybrady syndrome. You don't know the patient has tachybrady syndrome until they go brady. They might initially only present as one or the other, but the treatment for tachycardia is harmful when they randomly decide to go bradycardic. And that is exactly what happened to Kat's patient. Mrs. Hart went to her cardiologist with dizziness. She was found to be an AFib with a ventricular rate of 140. So they sent her to the ER and the ER, appropriately, as far as they knew, gave her diltiazem to slow her heart rate. And then she got a few more doses to help keep her rate controlled. So when she finally converted out of AFib, she went bradycardic and she got really brady, like her 30 seconds of asystole. The apparent pathway that was causing the AFib finally got enough blocker on board to calm it down. But the sinus node took a hot minute, actually 30 seconds, to recover and kick back into gear. Treating AFib RVR with a calcium channel blocker is totally appropriate if you just have AFib RVR. But Kat's patient had tachybrady syndrome that just was undiagnosed. So imagine if Kat had not checked her heart rate on the monitor and gave a beta blocker on top of the calcium channel blocker, that is double blocking a patient who intrinsically is bradycardic. And that, my friends, is a recipe for a code blue. So thank goodness she did not give that drug and she did a final check before pushing the beta blocker because that is how we were able to give her the diagnosis of tachybrady syndrome. The definitive treatment is an AV pacemaker placement or dual chamber pacer, which paces both the atria and the ventricles. It's more of a backup. As long as the sinus node is doing a good job, it's not needed. But if it goes too slow, then the pacemaker senses that and kicks in to ensure a heart rate that's fast enough to provide adequate cardiac output. So if patients need to be put on a rate controlling drug to keep their heart rate less than 100, it's safe because the patient might flip back into bradycardia, but it's no big deal. The pacer's there to keep them from having those long pauses. But in Mrs. Hart's case, after her pacer was placed, she continued to be tachycardic, so she got the deltaism, 
but her pacer malfunctioned and it did not perform its safety net function. That is why she ultimately coded on us, even with the pacemaker in place. Fortunately for her, it happened while she was still at the hospital and on the monitor with the nurse tech right there and the rapid response team was literally a few doors down. So she got a very quick response and was able to recover and be discharged. Yay! Now let's talk a little about bradycardia treatment. When I teach ACLS, we spend a whole hour on bradycardia because it's a common way that patients try to die. But I can't go into all of the bradycardias on this podcast. What I do want to discuss is some of the common things that trip people up or cause confusion. The first one is not all bradycardic patients need immediate treatment. If they're awake and alert with a blood pressure of greater than 90 systolic, they don't need atropine and they surely don't want to be paced. Treatment is completely based on how well they are perfusing their organs. If they have a good blood pressure and they're able to carry on a conversation, then their brain is being perfused. You can go ahead and get out the pacer pads and just have the pads on the patient's chest for good luck, but no electricity is required yet. However, sometimes these patients start out doing okay, but become unstable, and that is when it's time to start using pharmacological or electrical interventions. The second thing I see is that atropine only works for bradycardias that originate above the AV node. So if you have a wide complex bradycardia, that tells you the beat is originating below the AV node. You're just wasting time with atropine. Your other options are a dopamine drip or epinephrine drip, and those are great because you can titrate them to get the heart rate and the blood pressure the patient needs to perfuse their organs. But even those don't work a lot of time, and you have to transcutaneously pace the patient. Which leads me to my final point. When using transcutaneous pacing, do not get excited when you see pacer spikes on the monitor. This does not mean that the heart rate has increased. That just means that your device is delivering electricity, like it's supposed to. You need to see a QRS complex after every pacer spike. That looks like pacer spike, QRS, pacer spike, QRS, pacer spike, QRS. And when you see on the monitor a QRS complex after every pacer spike, we call this electrical capture. That means the device fired and the heart's electrical system responded. Sweet. You can almost get excited, but not yet. Just because you see something pretty on the monitor does not mean that is a reflection of what the heart muscle is actually doing. Sometimes you can have electrical capture, but no mechanical capture, meaning the electrical system is responding, but the heart isn't actually squeezing in response to that impulse. Kind of like PEA, when you have an organized rhythm on the monitor, but don't feel a pulse. If you have electrical capture, but not mechanical capture, you will feel the radio pulse and it won't feel as fast as what the monitor is showing. And I see this all the time, and it can be missed by very experienced clinicians. Once I had a flight crew bring in a patient to the ER that looked like death warmed over. He was pale and diaphoretic and minimally responsive, but on the monitor, he had a beautiful paced rhythm of 80 beats per minute. The crew reported that they had capture at 100 milliamps, but when I went to check the radio pulse, it was more like 20 beats per minute. So that patient had been paced, experienced the discomfort of being shocked at 100 milliamps 80 times per minute for the entire flight, but had no actual cardiac output benefit. 
that just sucks. We ended up having to place a transvenous pacer on the patient because we couldn't get mechanical capture from the transcutaneous pacer pads. So takeaway, when you are pacing, keep dialing up the milliamps until you see a QRS complex after every pacer spike. Once you see that, you can say you have electrical capture. But you can't say you actually fix things until you confirm mechanical capture by comparing the radio pulse to the rate you see on the monitor. And once you feel the radio pulse and what you're feeling matches what you see on the monitor, now you can say that you've got mechanical capture. And that is the kind that will actually improve your patient's cardiac output. And that you can get excited about. There is so much more that I could say about bradycardia, but let's just summarize tachybrady syndrome and save the other stuff for a future podcast. Tachybrady syndrome is a type of sinus node dysfunction that you might hear called sick sinus syndrome. It's easy to diagnose tachybrady syndrome when the patient's on the monitor and you can see them flipping in between fast rhythms and slow rhythms, but if you haven't seen it happen, some clues are a patient who tells you they keep passing out or almost passing out and they present to you with AFib-RVR because AFib by itself rarely produces syncope, so something else is going on. Once we have the diagnosis of tachybrady syndrome, do not give blockers for the tachycardia. They can just be tachy for a little while until they get their pacemaker. Make sure you treat all the other possible causes for tachycardia, like sepsis, dehydration, pain, anxiety, but don't give a cardiac drug that will drop the heart rate not until you have a permanent pacemaker in place as a backup. And finally, trust that intuition. Kat felt uncomfortable letting Mrs. Hart walk until she had her heart rate controlled. And she took that one final check before she stacked rate controlling agents and thank God she did. Shout out to all my tele nurses listening. You guys have a hard job and so many patients are sent to your floor who've had some cardiac event that we don't even know what it was. Could have been a run of BTAC or torsades or a long pause or they're started on a new drug that they've never had before and it's your job to watch them and make sure they don't have a strange reaction to it. You have a lot of responsibility. So don't let yourself develop alarm fatigue from all those telecalls. Stay vigilant like cat. Always be thinking worst case scenario and following your intuition if something doesn't feel right. That is how you catch the problem before it turns into a code blue. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponsernpodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RM Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, rapidresponsern.com.